Blog Talk Radio. live here on King Jordan Radio for September 14, 2017, Season 6, Episode 2. Tonight on the show, we'll get into the latest on the Anthony Weiner scandal, which in New York, uh, he headlined both papers. Congratulations to Anthony on that little accomplishment. Uh, We'll get into the latest on the Houston realtor that was missing, uh, the body was allegedly found. We'll get into that story. Plus, uh, I'm sure you heard it. You heard it once. You'll hear it again. Colin Kaepernick is he blamed the blackballed in the NFL? Well, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we have a huge, talented guest. Okay, if you tuned into the Casey Anthony slash Jody Arias case. You know the person that I'm talking about. He is the modern-day Marvel Albert of news reporting. He's a former prosecutor, HLN, CNN, Court TV analyst slash host, and he's working with a new company in uh, based out of Atlanta called Eleven Alive. He's, he'll be starting a new uh, show there. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome the one, the only, debuting for the first time here on this show, Vinnie Politan. Good evening, Vinnie. How are you? King Jordan. How are you, sir? (laughs) First thing I want to ask you, how are things in Atlanta where you are in terms of uh, the hurricane? Let's start with that. Oh, everything, uh, we got really lucky. You know, it looked like it was coming straight for the Atlanta, then it made a a turn to the west, and we ended up with a little bit of rain. A lot of folks were out of power. 
I was only down for a couple of hours, so uh, we did pretty well here. I have a son who goes to uh, Florida State, so he got out of Tallahassee. He came up here, but he'll be back at school on Monday. So we're all doing well. It's really the folks down in Florida that lost uh, power and the people in South Florida and Jacksonville with the flooding. I mean, it was pretty bad. Uh, And then, of course, we can't forget all the folks uh, out in in Texas as well. So uh, all things considered, we did extremely well here. Thanks for asking. But uh, we're thinking about all those other folks. Uh, No question. I like to ask this of all attorneys that come on my show, whether they're prosecution or defense. Can you define a time that you'll always remember in your prosecuting history? Uh, You know, like I asked Joey what his – you know, biggest moment achievement slash was in his defense thing, I, Richard Herman, etc., or Tom Mesereau. What would be Vinnie Politan's most, um, how do you say, you know, like most proud achievement of, I guess, a conviction in this uh, in this point? Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. When I look back, I think back to my first trial, right? Because I'm a young attorney. I, I mm-hmm. don't necessarily know exactly what i'm doing but i was uh, able to convict a guy on just two words yo yeah yo barry it was uh it wasn't it wasn't a big time case it wasn't a murder it wasn't it was a, it was a drug case so okay um the, the, the guy that we were going after was the go-between between the undercover and the guy who had the drugs and it was the guy on the street and all he said, as the undercover uh, uh, narc pulled up uh, on uh, there was Railroad Street in Hackensack, walks up to the car, sees our undercover, then turns and says the words, Yo, Barry. And that was it. He never touched the drugs. He never did anything else. Boom, I got him convicted just for saying, Yo, Barry. Because basically he was the guy, the facilitator. He's the one out on the street who makes contact with the with the uh, buyer and then hooks up the buyer with the seller of the drugs, who was Barry, who was up in, in, in the apartments. But that was the first trial I ever had, and, and oh, okay. uh, it was interesting because a lot of the you know more experienced uh, prosecutors in the office didn't think I was going to be able to get a conviction on that one because there there wasn't a ton of evidence. We all knew that he was involved in this transaction, but could you convince twelve jurors? And, uh, and, and I was able to do that. So that, that's one I'll never forget. There was one other one. There was one other one. Uh, and, and this yeah, one was just a moment in a case where okay. um, it's another drug case, and I am prosecuting this woman for she, she uh, took uh, a shipment of like $90,000 worth of heroin. And wow. in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the trial, you know, the jury's out of the courtroom. The judge isn't on the bench. It's just like, me and the defense attorney and the defendant, and the defendant, and it's a female defendant, and she turns to me and she says, and I'm a young prosecutor at the time, she says, you know, if you weren't prosecuting me, I'd fix you up with my daughter. <laughs> Serious? <laughs> Unbelievable. Been well, weird. The, the bottom line is I, I was already dating my future wife, so you know, it was no, no big loss, uh, but she got convicted and she did five years. I don't know what happened oh to her God. daughter. <laughs> what did you think when you heard that, though? It was it was interesting. It was interesting. But, you know, that's the part that people don't necessarily see. You know, in, in a lot of these cases, and I was a young prosecutor, so they're not giving me the murder the murder cases right out of the box, right? 
Uh, right. A lot of these cases, another trial, I convict a guy who um, he, was a, he was an ex-con, and one of the rules when you're an ex-con is you cannot be in possession of a gun ever, right? So he was in possession of a gun, and, and we convicted him of that. But I'm waiting. I, I just convicted him, but the judge didn't lock him up, right? The judge um, continued the sentencing for another day and didn't revoke his bond. So he's free to go. So I'm up there. I just get the conviction. I got the box of evidence with me, and I'm waiting for my investigator from downstairs to show up, and the judge is, like, kicking everybody out of the courtroom. My investigator doesn't show up. So I pick up my box of evidence, including the gun, get in the elevator, and, of course, in the elevator with me is, is the defendant who I just convicted. So I'm like, this isn't good. And, and as we're riding down in the elevator, he turns to me, and he says, nice job, prosecutor. <laughs> right? And what that told me was this guy was like a, a you know, he was a – professional criminal like he he understood the way the system it wasn't personal it was just business he knows i'm doing hit my job you know he was doing what he was doing and everything was okay you know he wasn't like he was gonna attack me in the elevator the gun that he was convicted of carrying was in the box that i'm 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 carrying down with me and uh, it's just like nice job prosecutor i'm like thanks uh i guess i'll see you at sentence at sentencing (laughs) oh my goodness one yeah. other thing, um, you you covered obviously from uh, at nauseum, Jody Aries and Casey Anthony. Which yeah. was the more captivating case? Who was more evil? Who was more yeah, evil? More evil. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's tough. <laughs> now, here, here's the first comparison you want to make between the two because we know they're both perpetual liars, right? Uh, they, 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 they they can't tell the truth. You know, you, you can tell they're lying when when their lips are moving, right? But right when they wake up. Casey Anthony, and and this isn't because of the the the, the jury's verdict, just from right. watching them in action. Casey Anthony was a much better um, on the spot liar. See, Casey Anthony could right. make up a lie as quickly as you could snap your finger, whereas Jody right. Arias. She had to concoct something. She needed time to come up with a story. Because if if you watch the interrogation videos that we had on both of them, absolutely, Jody Arias got tripped up very quickly, and and her story and she's fumbling and mumbling trying to make up a story as evidence is being shown to her by the by the investigator, which is basically saying, no, you're not telling me the truth. How about this? How about that? And she had trouble with that. Casey Anthony had no problem whatsoever. Not that she was ever telling the truth, but she could go from one lie to another lie faster than anyone I've ever seen and and not miss a beat. So I I think she was a much more prolific liar than than Jody Arias. Jody Arias was obsessed with with Travis Alexander. That That was her thing. Um... And, and and she had some sort of break from whatever her life was. Once she met Travis, that was that was the end of it, and, and she had to have him. Um, Casey and Anthony, the, on the other hand, was was I think the real friction in that case wasn't between her and her daughter. The the friction was between her and her mother, and her mother knew that Casey Anthony was a horrible mother, and and Cindy wanted to raise that child, and I think that. There was a constant threat of her wanting to uh, of doing that, and perhaps actually taking action to get that done, and and that became the the motivation behind wh- why she did what she did. 
if you're the prosecutor of the case, the Anthony case, what would you have done with the mother? Because she was like playing both ends of the spectrum. You know, as she, as you remember, she uh, took the stand and she said things to the case. Uh, she lied. Like she lied. The, uh, she absolutely lied on she the lied, stand. Right. And she, she lied, and it was clear that she lied. Um, you know, you have to explain who she is. There's nothing you could do. You can't. You're not going to be able to compel her to say something that she's not willing to say, and she never was willing to say it. Because I think what you, what you had to do was just explain to the jury. Let's understand, Cindy, Cindy what position she's in. She's lost her granddaughter, right. and now her daughter's facing the death penalty. Do you really think she right. wants to lose both of them? That's why she'll say anything in here, folks. Despite how much she loved little Kaylee Marie, she doesn't want to lose her daughter and her granddaughter. Okay? So, so, and, and that's the reason I personally never, you know, I don't think you should lie on the stand, but I, she was put into this position. You know, it, you know right. a lot of people tried to villainize Cindy and George. I never saw it that way. I saw them as being two more of Victim. Casey Anthony's victims because Casey Anthony right. was the cancer in that family. That family was basically, for the most part, a normal family. There was nothing um, that, that was systematically wrong or broken with that family other than the evil daughter, Casey. That was it. Right. She was the one that, that – she was the cancer in that family that just made everyone else's actions look bizarre. And it, it, was, it was always focused on her and the way she was acting. And we saw it play out, and we've seen it play out after the trial as well, you know, showing her true colors of, of who she is and what she is and, and how she sees the world. So, um, for, for, you know, what to do with Cindy, there wasn't much you, you, you could do. The, the real missed opportunity, though, was by investigators who didn't search the second search engine. You know, they looked under one search engine on the computer, but they didn't look on the other one, which was the one that Casey was actually using. So it was a huge mistake by the computer forensic investigator for the prosecution because on that other search engine was much more compelling evidence against Casey Anthony that could not be explained by Cindy. Cindy tried to take the rap that I was doing the searches here, but there were other searches that were clearly at times that Cindy didn't have access to the computer that was clearly Casey Anthony searching on the computer for the things that she looked up, and that was a missed opportunity, and that was one of the reasons uh, that the prosecution's case wasn't as strong as it could have been. Okay, let's go to the soundbite that involves Anthony Weiner, Clinton, and more, and then I want to get your take on the other side. In sure, a new sure. book let's out tomorrow, Hillary Clinton says her defeat in the presidential race can be blamed in part on the FBI reopening its investigation of her emails just days before the election. And that can be attributed to this young lady. When she was 15, she received lewd messages and pictures from disgraced former Congressman Anthony Weiner, whose wife was Clinton's right-hand aide, Huma Abedin. Now, in this Inside Edition exclusive, the teenage girl speaks with our Diane McInerney. She's a teenager whose online relationship with Anthony Weiner threw Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign into a tailspin and perhaps changed the course of American history. Now, she's ready to tell her story to the world. How would you describe these messages? Um, disgusting. Did he know that you were only 15 years yes, old? Yes, he did. Inside Edition is withholding her name because she's a minor. She's showing her face on TV for the first time with the permission of her father. How did you first come into contact with Anthony Weiner? 
It was through a direct message on the application Twitter. I just sent him a nice message, just, hello, I'm a huge fan. It was January 2016. Peter's wife, Hillary Clinton's closest aide, Uma Abedin, was at the peak of her influence. On the campaign trail, she was always at Clinton's side. How soon did it go from these niceties to him taking it to a different level? I knew that it was going downhill and really fast. Wiener communicated with the teen on Twitter and Facebook, and also on the controversial social media sites Kick and Confide. Sometimes Wiener hid his identity using the screen name T-Dog. From there, he called me attractive. You are kind of, sort of gorgeous, went one message from the former congressman. Your body is pretty insane. And this, I thought about you this AM. Some of his messages are so obscene, they can't be shown on television. He also sent her photos showing him bare-chested, including a picture that the teenager found especially upsetting. What did you think when you saw that photograph that he sent with his young child? I was disgusted. That's part of the reason that I came forward. Did he ever talk to you about his wife? He did. One time, when the last time that they were sexually involved was, he said it had been a year. And this is somebody who was a very powerful yeah. congressman at one point. Did it shock you that he's sending you these sexually explicit messages? Yes. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should turn him in. In September 2016, the FBI came knocking. They showed up at my house with a subpoena from New York. The FBI also had a subpoena for Anthony Weiner and confiscated all of his electronic devices, including a laptop that was used by his wife, Uma Abedin. FBI agents found thousands of emails between Uma and Hillary Clinton. It was that discovery that led FBI Director James Comey to reopen the investigation into Clinton's private email server. The presidential election was just 11 days away. We never thought we were going to say thank you to Anthony Weiner. Clinton says it was a blow from which her campaign never recovered. 11 days before the election. 11 days before the election, and it raised the specter that somehow the investigation was being reopened. It just stopped my momentum. The team's dad spoke to us on the condition that his face not be shown. What was your reaction when you found out that this 50-something-year-old man is preying on your young child? My instant reaction was to find him and destroy him. But then you think about your child and, and you want them to grow up with the father. The teen says she finally feels comfortable talking about the remarkable role she played in the greatest upset in U.S. political history, the election of Donald Trump. I think it made people question Hillary Clinton. Anthony Weiner pled guilty to sending obscene material to a minor later this month. He's expected to be sentenced to around two years in federal prison. Uma Abedin is in the process of divorcing him. I'd like to get your take on the uh, whole Anthony Weiner situation. Where where do we start? Uh, if, if you want to start with, uh, should this guy go to prison? Should he not? What is he saying? Um, you, you know, he, he pled guilty. He he took a deal. He he could have faced up to ten years. It looks like prosecutors are are recommending twenty one to twenty seven months. 
he's in he's in the federal system. So the federal system, there's a lot less discretion really in in some of these plea right. deals. So I I expect that he will do some time, and my guess it'll be between 21 and 27 months. Uh, if it was a state case, it might be completely different. Uh, the bottom line, he, he's very similar to many criminal defendants. You know, when I was a prosecutor. On Fridays, we would do sentencings, and we would do the sentencings not just for our own cases, but all the cases. So we'd go in front of a judge. I'd have a stack of, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 defendants who were going to come in, and uh, they would make their arguments as why they should be a lenient sentence, and I would make my arguments why they should do the time that they deserve. And inevitably, I would say 70 to 90% on a given day of the criminal defendants would always talk about some problem that they had, whether it was, and usually it was an addiction, you know. Um, if, if it was someone who was dealing drugs, they had a drug addiction. If it was a burglar, usually they had a drug addiction, and they were breaking into houses to support their habit. And inevitably, the, the argument from the defense would be, oh, your honor, he has a problem. He realizes now that he has a problem. He's ready to address it. Uh, please give him an uh, inpatient drug program instead of prison, Your Honor. And they make these arguments wow. every week, week after week. And, and, and for a lot of these guys, it wasn't their first time to the rodeo. And, and with Wiener, if you look at the history of how many times he got caught doing this, it's not his first time to the rodeo. I mean, if he really legitimately uh, understood that he had a problem, he, he was rich enough, powerful enough, sophisticated enough to get the help that he needed right away, rather than continue to engage in this behavior. Absolutely. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he was doing was wrong. And, um, and, and if I was the prosecutor in this case at sentencing, uh, I would really stress that part of the case, the fact that this isn't the first time he got caught doing this. We, we, the whole world knows about Wiener and his Wiener, you know? Um, yes, yes, to be blunt, so, right. So, and and, and the these are the arguments that, that we would have to deal with day in and day out as prosecutors that every criminal defendant was, 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 was a victim of something, was addicted to something, and just needed help. Regardless of how long the rap sheet was, regardless of what the offense was, it was them that needed help, um, and, and that was always the tact. And, and that's why, even though he's a congressman, even though he's powerful, everybody knows or was powerful, everyone knows who he, was, who he is, um, he's the same. He's the same as all these other defendants that, 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 that roll into these courtrooms. The fact, though, that this is the alleged teenager in question, how much stronger is this case as opposed to somebody that's over 21? Oh, yeah. That's, I mean, that's the, whole, that's the whole case, really, because you, you cannot, and a lot of people don't understand the way this law works, uh, especially with the advent of cell phones and everything. If, if you send uh, material like that to someone who's underage, Boom! There, there's no, there's no um, real defense to it. it. It's, it's, it's an easy case to prosecute, and you just can't do it. Even if you yourself are underage, you can't send that stuff to another underage person, and you can't mm. then, you, and you can't just receiving it. So that's why I, I tell kids all the time, teenagers, because they're all exchanging these pictures of each other, and they're all underage, yeah. right? Yeah, you get a picture like that. If you have kids out there, tell, delete it immediately. Because if if you are the one who has it on your phone, if you forward it to someone, 
You could be prosecuted for that, and that's forever, and that's a sex offense. That is bad. You know, you might be an 18-year-old high school senior, and your girlfriend might be, you know, 16 years old. And, and while there's nothing really wrong with that, and it's very common, but today with these cell phones and these pictures that the kids take, you know that that 18-year-old is looking for pictures of that 16-year-old. And you know what? You can't do that. You can't ask for that picture. You can't receive that picture. And you can't give that picture to anyone else. So anytime anything even close to that happens, delete it, delete it, delete it so you're not breaking the law because it, it, it's happening all the time. And, and kids don't realize it, and it's so dangerous. I mean, when, when we were prosecuting, this is how, how strict the law is when it comes to uh, pornography and, and lewd pictures of children, okay? Um, and this isn't right. sending the pictures to the children. This is actual pictures of children. When, when I was a prosecutor, we had the sex crimes unit, and we would have, you know, videotapes or, or photographs of underage children, right? And... You know what discovery right. is, right? So before a case, everything yes. the prosecution has, all the evidence, they have to give a copy of Turn it, it to the defense and, and to the defense attorney. Well, when it comes to right. child pornography, they can't do that. The defense attorney has to come to the prosecutor's office, go to the secured location, and view that one copy that is being used to prosecute uh, that defendant. The pros- even the prosecutor can't make copies of it and give it to someone because then they're distributing child pornography. Oh. There's no exceptions to this. So the, the the bottom line, if you've got a picture like that, delete it. Absolutely, this stuff is is dangerous, and there's no there's no laws around it. There's no way around it. You can't possess it. You can't forward it. You can't share it. And 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 in, in reverse, as with Wiener here, you can't send anything to a child. Make once you send it, that electronic trail is there forever. So even if you um, send it by accident, in, in Wiener's case, even if you send it uh, accidentally, that's the that's the problem. Just don't. You can't do it. And Wiener did it, and he did it again. I think he did it a total of three separate times. Might probably did it more, just cut caught three times. That's how he, exactly, and, and that's a great point, right? You know, um, <laughs> this this is the other great <laughs> argument criminal defense attorneys make. Um, you know, someone comes into court and they have a, and, and, and when it's time to sentence them, they have a rap sheet, right? And you look at you know the last time they got arrested and 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 the, and the time you're pro- now you're prosecuting them, and maybe the last time they got arrested was seven years ago. And they'd always say, he's led a law-abiding life for seven years. And I'm under my breath. He can't say it in court, but under my breath, I'm like, no, he hasn't been caught in seven years. Don't tell me he's been living a law-abiding life. <laughs> Give me a if break. If you watch Judge Judy, she always makes the point to the defendant never being caught. She goes, it's just because you haven't got caught ten years. Exactly. <laughs> would exactly. Always say. It's not like I'm always doing the right yeah, thing. So what do you expect uh, to wrap this uh, story up? you expect him to serve at least uh, a couple of years? Yeah, I, I think it'll be two years. I think it'll be two years, and uh, and it should be close to real time. You know, you, you get a, you get some time off in the in the federal system, but much less than you would in most states. So, I think he'll do a real time, and and when he gets out, who knows what his life is going to be like? But you know, this is a guy who who was basically, you know, he was in an unbelievable position when you look at his career and, and, yes. and politics. He was basically. Taken under the wing I met by him the actually Clintons. a couple of times. He was a real nice guy, but he had yeah. his dog and, and you know, he was he was being set up for a a, a real 
career in politics. The connect, you know, the the connection to UMA was huge, and and obviously mm-hmm. the connection to the Clintons. And you're a Democrat, and you're in New York. I mean, he would have probably been at some point, uh, you know, either mayor, uh, senator, governor, whatever. But that's all. And it, and it's amazing, right? Uh, that's another New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Who, who's the other one with the uh, client number? What was it? Client number nineteen. The ex-governor of New York. Um, oh, uh, the uh, TV personality, right? Uh, uh, the guy who wore his socks while he was with the prostitute. Right. He used to call the prostitute on a daily basis. Oh, oh geez, yeah. I can't remember his name, but uh, that's he, good that we don't we, remember it, right? He's out of he's, right, he's out of the public eye now. Good point. <laughs> okay, I want to get to the story of the ex-husband charge with the Houston oh, yeah. real estate agent. Here's a little cut of that story, and I'll get your take on this other side. New twist in that murder case in Houston. A mother of two vanishing just hours before Hurricane Harvey hit. Now, her ex-husband is under arrest. ABC's Diane Macedo is here with the new developments. Good morning, Diane. Robin, good morning. Steve McDowell heads to court today, charged with first-degree murder. Not only do police say they found Crystal McDowell's body, but in a surprising turn, they say her ex-husband confessed. This morning, a startling confession which could solve the mystery of who killed Texas realtor Crystal McDowell. She was last seen in this security video leaving her boyfriend's house just hours before Hurricane Harvey hit. But despite the deadly storm, authorities suspected foul play. Once we started the investigation, there were a number of family and friends that had expressed concerns uh, about the ex-husband. Now police say after questioning her ex-husband for days, Steve McDowell tearfully admitted to murdering the mother of his two children. Once I got that call, I was in a state of shock and denial. So just trying to deal with it the best way I can. Crystal started dating Paul Hargrave just three weeks before her death. When she left his house the day she went missing, she was heading to pick up her children at her ex-husband's home. She did make it um, to, to and see her kids at that particular day. Three days later, the 37-year-old's black Mercedes was found at this flooded Motel 6 parking lot. And over a week later, her body was found in a wooded area nearby. Stephen McDowell is now charged with first-degree murder, but police haven't yet revealed a possible motive. There had been some, uh, some tension and stress, and there had been some... Uh, uh, you know, potential disagreements. I had my suspicions from day one. I can't say that I was honestly that surprised, given the um, arguments they had the week prior of her missing. The McDowells shared custody of their children after finalizing their divorce in June, but McDowell was still living with her ex-husband while her home was being remodeled. A lot of that was so she had access to the children. Um, the children were primarily staying with, with Steve. And this isn't the couple's first encounter with the cops. Police say Crystal called them in March, saying Steve had threatened to hurt himself and their children, but he returned the kids safely the next day, so no charges were filed. George, of course, he will face a charge in this case. First-degree murder, it's not clear yet how he'll plead today. Okay, we will be watching. Dan, thanks very much. Okay, Vinny, this is a uh, sad story. Uh, now we find out it's the ex-husband that got charged. He cried when he admitted it. Uh, what's your take on this uh, story? Well, well, the first thing I know when, when she went missing uh, and, and they suspected foul play, I thought this might be a very difficult case to solve and, and to prove. You know, you, you have your suspects and you always start you know, with the people closest uh, to the victim. Uh, just because of, of the hurricane and everything else, you've got um, 
you know, the possibility of the environment perhaps uh, interfering with some of the evidence, maybe even making yes. it difficult to, to find uh, the remains. And then you've got all these other things going around. Uh, but the fact that they get a confession from him is, is key and is crucial. Uh, it, it led them to the body. Now, the only question I have about all this is, and, and what we heard in the report, is that after days of interviewing him, he finally confessed. Well, we know the first thing that any criminal defense attorney is going to do in this case, which is try to get the confession suppressed. And a lot of that has to do with, well, what were the circumstances surrounding this confession? And that's something that will be the, the, really the linchpin to this case. Uh, as, long as, they still ha- as long as they have the confession and it stays in evidence and they're able to use that, um, this should be a relatively easy case to prosecute. And, and, and you talk about motive. They don't know what the motive is. Oh, come on, we know what the motive was. It's, uh, they're getting divorced and they're sharing children. They're probably arguing about visitation and everything else. And we know that this guy uh, had a history of issues if you know there was a, a call to police beforehand. To me, that's the, that's the part of this case that um, – because with, with each case – um, that I've covered through the years, I always try to take something away from it. You know, have, have we yeah. learned something about how maybe uh, another tragedy like this could be prevented? And, and in this case, you know, there were signs, right? He had, he had made a threat beforehand. You know, when people are in this situation, you have to take those threats seriously, and, and there has to be some action on it. And, you, and unfortunately, people have to probably go to court to, to have – some sort of result here, and, and we know that a restraining order and everything is only a piece of paper, uh, but it's but it's something. It, it, it's it's some means of protection and awareness. Um, and to me, that's the real tragedy here is that, um, and we're not even Monday morning quarterbacking here. What we know, right. and, and and this is another thing that people might not realize, you know, and, and it goes back to the you know the criminal defendant that was riding down in the elevator with me. Nodded to me and said, "Nice job, prosecutor." I right. just prosecuted him. The, the, the most dangerous courtroom in a courthouse is family court. Right. Family court, not the criminal courts. The criminal courts aren't the most dangerous. The people who are most at risk are the litigants, the lawyers, and the judges in family court. Because really? these become the most emotional cases, and this is these are the cases where people snap, and and that's why when there's a threat or, or, or something along those lines in in a situation where we're talking about um, you know a husband and a wife breaking up, uh, a, a battle of custody for children, anyone if you're if you're ever in, and you know 50 percent of the population gets divorced, right? So if if you're ever in a situation like that. And, and there's a, a threat from the other side, you have to take that seriously because people get so emotionally entwined in these cases that they, they, they lose it and they can do things that they might not otherwise have ever done. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a dangerous, volatile place. And in this case, you know, I don't think anything was done after that first threat. He's like, oh, no, we reconciled and they were back living not reconciled reconciled but you know they kind of moved on and and and, and they didn't, she didn't perceive it i guess as a real threat otherwise she wouldn't have gone there and she wouldn't have let him have her kids but when it happens we've got to take those things seriously so that would be my takeaway uh from this tragedy 
Yes, and you mentioned the confession on Netflix uh, just released um, a documentary called The Confession Tapes where they showed uh, certain tactics that, I'm not saying all of them, but the certain places where they get people to confess when they're not even, had nothing, they're not even in in the line of fire. They're not yeah. anywhere near the crime. Have you ever heard of uh, such tactics from the uh, police? Oh, yeah. The, 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 there's a, there's a uh, pretty well-documented history of false confessions. Um, and that's one of the reasons under the law you can't convict someone just with a confession. You have to have some corroborating evidence along with it. Now, in, in this case, the corroborating evidence would be, well, if he confessed and led them to the body, then you can trust that confession a lot more because if he didn't kill her, yeah. how did he know where her body was, right? So right. that's why our system is really built that way to, to, to um, only accept a confession as evidence when there is other evidence with it. You know, our, our system of justice, Lady Justice, has recognized that there are false confessions out there and there, there are ways and tactics that are used um, where, where people may admit things that, that aren't true. You, you look at the, the case out of Italy. Um, oh, my goodness. Amanda Knox. Amanda Knox, right? Um, now, there was also a language problem there, but mm. there was somewhat of a false confession in that one, too, and that interrogation was outrageously long and done yes. in not her native language, and she didn't have a translator. And... Um, there, there, were, there were some words that she said that were used against her, and we know that she wasn't guilty of, of that murder based upon all the evidence. And we know who the real murderer was, Rudy Begay, um, the guy whose DNA was all over the place, the guy who fled Italy uh, the day after the murder, and the guy who confessed to the murder, the guy who was convicted of the murder. And um, it can happen. It's real, which is why police have to be really people. important, have to be really careful about how they, because because the job of of police and prosecutors is not to get convictions, it's to right. seek the truth, just the truth. Right. There I'll give you people, one more story, though, however, King George. One more story. Our own Aphrodite Jones uh, believes that uh, she at least had something to do with it. Uh, she wouldn't go as far as saying she did it, but uh, there are still people that feel that Knox is guilty. Uh, you obviously don't, right? Oh, to me, it, it's the most preposterous, preposterous oh, really? case. Not even chance. Yes, I went. I went. Through, first of all, I went through all the uh, um, forensic evidence with with experts here in this country. None of that stuff would have been admissible in court. Some of the DNA that was found uh, yeah. came from a piece of fruit. A piece of fruit. Now the whole. The, the, the entire theory of the original prosecution about this wild orgy was completely made up by the Italian prosecutor who was subsequently prosecuted himself, okay? Pro subsequently wow. prosecuted himself. And he had made up the same story in another case that he prosecuted. This guy just made it up story. out of thin air. There was, oh there was no evidence of an orgy. There was nothing. He made it up. The prosecutors made it that's up terrible. out of thin air. I mean, that's usually what, it's that's amazing, usually what criminal defense attorneys do. Here in the U.S., but over there she was like the enemy, 
And over here, she was like, you know, somebody that people, most people were cheering on and felt that she was wrongly convicted. Yeah, and, and, and trust me, when I first approached the case, I said, I, I understand the prejudice is there. I'm going to look at the evidence, right? And I, and I came into that case saying, well, my guess is she's probably guilty, right? I mean, she's probably guilty. Oh. Let, let me go through. Let me, let, me talk some, let me look at the evidence. And I'm like, this is absurd. This, the guy who committed the crime, it was a break-in. The, the window was broken into. Rudy DeGay had been arrested several times in that same neighborhood for breaking into apartments at night. He had a history of wow. doing this. He had no connection to Amanda Knox, zero, n- nothing. There was no connection until after his conviction, the prosecutor promised to let him out earlier if he would implicate Amanda Knox. So why wouldn't he implicate her? Why would right. He never did it beforehand, but he did it after he was convicted and then promised to get out of prison early. So what... What killer wouldn't do that? What killer wouldn't lie on the stand to get out of jail early? All of them would, no, no especially this that. guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, How could this guy not be the one? He fled the country after the murder. Which is His called DNA is guilt, all right? over the apartment. When you of course flee, it was isn't that him. Is that called consciousness of guilt, right? Yeah, when you flee. flight, consciousness of guilt. The guilty people run away. Did Amanda Knox run away? No. And, and here's the thing. Amanda Knox, her, what she was guilty of was being extremely naive and being mm-hmm. high on marijuana at the time she is photographed, uh, uh, you know, hugging and dancing with her boyfriend of two weeks. That's what she's oh guilty of. Gracious. There were a couple of images Terrible. that were caught of her doing this. They called her. They branded her the Foxy Noxy, and yes. and they they painted this whole picture. And they have the victim's family convinced that there was a, a wild orgy. I mean, it's crazy. It's there's no evidence Unreal. of this orgy. None. Unbelievable. Okay, Colin Kaepernick. Here is Stephen A. Snoop Dogg and Magic Johnson. This is a quick uh, cut. Uh, courtesy of ESPN. We'll come back and we'll talk and we'll wrap it up. What's your take on Colin Kaepernick not being on a roster when we see guys like Scott Tolzien out there that are just struggling? Uh, I don't know what the problem is. I, I spoke on it yesterday as I was watching some of the games and um, just said that a lot of these teams just want to lose and just get a, a great draft pick rather than taking a chance on getting somebody out there that can help you win right now. At least he's able to scramble and keep the play alive and to, to be able to make things happen after the fact. I'm just watching quarterbacks just drop back and just Pop Warner style, just get dropped or throw the ball away. Like, that's not NFL style but football. But Snoop, Magic, I'll come to both of y'all about this because we all know what time it is. We know it ain't about football as to why this man isn't playing the game of football right now because he can start for at least 10 teams yes, and he sir. can be a backup for at least 30 to 31 of them. This is about him kneeling for the national anthem and supposedly alienating so much of the American populace that you got owners who are scared to bring him in because they're afraid he may affect the bottom line negatively. I'll go to you first, Magic, then you, Snoop, in terms of your thoughts about that. Well, I think that, first of all, we got to applaud him for, you know, bringing up things that's been happening in urban America for a long time in terms of our school system. You know, we got books that are torn. We don't have computers. You know, 
people are being um, discriminated against. I mean, so Colin, you know, he stood up and his voice was for the voiceless, right? For those who nobody will listen to those people. So he was speaking for those people. Now, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate because every owner and every team says, oh, I want to win the Super Bowl. Really? This man is out of football and you're telling us that you want to win? Look, he said what he said. He stood by it, and he put his money behind mm. his words. Mm-hmm. See, and that's what I like about Colin as well. He, he not only spoke the words, but he put his money where his mouth is. And then last but not least, he already said, hey, that was last year. Now I'm ready to move forward. And teams should say, okay, I'm going to take a, a chance on him because I'm going to tell you something about sports fans. Once he's on that field and he throws that first touchdown, we love him. It's over. You we just said it. <laughs> you just said it. And so, if you can help a team win, fans would jump on board. And what did he do so bad? Yeah. Like I didn't see players in the league that, it, that I ain't gonna say what they did. Y'all know what they did. Mm-hmm. Right. But it wasn't worse than what he did. The capital crimes. He, exactly. he peacefully protested. Pe- the word is peacefully. Yes. I've seen some protests. In Charlottesville, that wasn't peaceful. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, show the benefits of what he did on the positive side, which he brought some awareness to something that's actually happening exactly. as we speak. Okay, Vinny, you've been covering this, I think, from A to Z. What is your take on the Colin Kaepernick saga? Well, there's a lot of elements. Now, I can't, you know, we're not in the minds of every GM and every owner in the NFL as to why he doesn't have a job. Uh, there's two particular jobs I could talk about uh, why he probably doesn't have them. One of them for sure why he doesn't have them. Um, the Miami Dolphins, their starting quarterback went down, right? So a lot of people thought maybe the Miami Dolphins. Uh, I don't know if people recall Colin Kaepernick walking around with a picture of Fidel Castro on, on his right. T-shirt. Which is it's fine. You're allowed to do that. Right. You, can, you, can, you can do whatever you want. But uh, if you've ever been down to Miami and you walk around wearing a, a Fidel Castro T-shirt, uh, you're not going to be one of the favorite, you know, <laughs> you're not going to be one of the yeah. favorite uh, athletes in, in, in town sporting the Fidel Castro T-shirt down in Miami, uh, and, and we know why. Um, now, the Ravens were going to sign him. They were right. moments away from signing him when Colin Kaepernick's girlfriend um, – posted a racist tweet against Ray Lewis, who works for the Ravens, and the owner there, making making a racist comparison as to how the Ravens run their business. As soon as that thing was posted, the Ravens said, we don't want any part of this. And and it was done. He would have been signed by the Ravens. Now, I've also heard stories that there were other teams that offered him jobs, but not enough money. Okay, so... You know, the market is what the market is. People will pay what they think he's worth. That's right. So um, there have been stories. So that may account for some of the teams that may have had some interest for whatever reason. The thing about Colin Kaepernick, and and, and this is – I want to get to the legal part of all this and and relative to a couple things that he said. Number one, he absolutely has the right to do – to do all that, right? To take a knee, to say whatever yes. he wants, wear whatever he wants. He can wear the uh, cops or pigs socks to practice. You can do all that, right? But what you have to also understand is that your employer can not employ you for doing all of that. 
So they in, have the right. in a legal sense, when it comes to employment law, you know, the employer is the NFL and the team, right? So they can say, listen, that's not in the best interest of our business model. You know, people um, are getting laid off and fired for posts on social media and, and other things that they do all the time. It happens every day out there. This is just a high-profile case. So, and, and, and he didn't ever get fired from the, the 49ers were going to cut him because his contract was way too high for his level of productivity, right? So he opted out of his contract instead of getting cut by the 49ers, which would have happened. So he opted out and was expected to get signed, but he didn't. Now, I, I've read some of the things that he's talked about, and he has legitimate issues, and he's a super smart guy. Um, yes. But he said one thing that I, I was a little surprised that he said because it, it really showed a very um, unsophisticated a, approach to an issue, and, and it was about police shootings. And, 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 and the quote I read from him was that, you know, when police shoot and kill someone, and we know the types of cases we're talking about, they're put on mm-hmm. paid administrative leave, right? And, and, and he was right. calling out, you know, the police, how could you put them on, how could you pay them for killing someone? You know, they go out and they kill someone, and they, and they get like a paid vacation, right? But you have to look at it a, a little differently. And, again, this now gets uh, from the world of employment law into the world of labor law. And, and mm-hmm. Colin Kaepernick should probably understand this a little bit better being a member of a pretty strong union himself. I mean, police officers have strong unions. Professional athletes have strong unions that uh, represent them and protect their rights. And, and the relationship between an employer and an employee when there is a union is much different because the entire relationship is controlled by the collective bargaining agreement, the CBO, right? So, uh, for police officers, and 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 it'll vary from um, station, you know, from from municipality to municipality, city to city, what the collective bargaining agreement says. But in most cases, when there when there is an investigation into a shooting, there's certain protocol that takes place, and that protocol is not at the whim of one person to say, "Oh, you shot someone, you're not getting paid." No, it's, it's, it's all – there are certain procedures in the collective bargaining agreement about what the employer can and cannot do with an employee under certain circumstances. So my point is in these police shootings, which happen all the time, um, there is a standard operating procedure as to how police officers, when they get paid, when they don't get paid, when they can be suspended with and without pay, and it's all – it's all controlled by the collective bargaining agreement, which is the same thing with an NFL player. Like you see with Ezekiel, Ezekiel Elliott, the, the running back from the, from the Cowboys. Dallas who got Cowboys, suspended. Right. He got suspended, but his union stepped up for him. And now he's not suspended because there's a procedure in place that is all controlled by the collective bargaining agreement. Um, so, and, the only, and the other thing is somebody told me that, look, he's a quarterback. He stands out the most. You know, they're not going to remember, like, a, a right tackle doing it as much as the main guy in football. Yeah, well, yeah, like, the, the quarterback becomes the face of, uh, of, of the squad. Of the now, you know, you know is, is it right, is it wrong for um, if, if some owners want him, need him, would sign him, but for the fact that he kneeled during the national anthem? Well, that's, that's not a legal question because legally they don't have to sign him, right? They do not wise. have to. Um, it becomes more of a, of, a, of a question of 
okay, someone exercising their the freedom of speech, and you know, is this workplace different than any other workplace? Is this business different than any other business? Well, it, it really isn't. The, the 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 owner of this private business can control it however they want. Now, if he was a public employee, then there'd be a much different standard. If he worked for the government, there'd be a much different standard. Right. Like the, the government could not. Um, fire you for exercising a a constitutional right. So um, this is a private employer, so it's a a different uh, scenario. I think the bottom line for for Colin Kaepernick is he's bright. He's kind of staked his ground out now, and I think at some point when he he moves on from football, when he moves on from football, he's going to have a very successful career doing something. Uh, The question is... It could be commentary. He could be a, a, a social activist. He could become a politician. Um, I don't know. Maybe he goes back to law sure. school. Yeah, whatever it is, you know, he, he can write his own future. Um, so that's not a problem. Plus, yes. he already has enough. He has made more money than all of us are ever going to make in our entire lives. He's already <laughs> made that. So, so the, he's, he's never going to be sweating it. Okay. Uh, but the bottom line is. He, <laughs> He can he can still be a very productive, important member of society, um, whether he ever takes another snap under center or doesn't. Um, as far as his football his football prowess, he had a great year when Jim Harbaugh was his coach. Uh, That's right. Uh, you know, you're but, but hasn't since. And, and I think under the right coach, the right system, he could probably uh, uh, we could probably make Colin great again. What is your team? What football team is your team? Do well, you I grew one? up in New Jersey. The home of the Giants right. and Jets, and we had season tickets. You wouldn't know both, that because so. they're called the New York Jets, but yes, right. Uh, the, the, they're, they're called the New York Giants and the New York Jets, but we both know they live and work in New Jersey. So let's just keep that clear. And both of us they're have both never seen the in Jersey and have been for decades. For decades, right. I was at the first Giant game at, at the Meadowlands ever. I was at the, I was really? at the first Giants game. I was at the first Giant Monday night game, first Giant playoff game at Giant Stadium, first playoff win, and I was in the uh, in the end zone when they beat the Broncos in the Super Bowl out at the uh, at the was L.A. Coliseum. Yeah, at the L.A. Coliseum. Yeah, the L.T. the uh, um, uh, Phil Sims when he Phil Sims like only had one incomplete pass the whole uh, one or two the whole whole Super Bowl. It was, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable game. Do you have time I cheer for, for both. A I cheer for both, but there's nothing to cheer for with the Jets. <laughs> the Giants, there is a little bit. Do you have time for a couple calls before you, I let you go? Yeah, let's take some calls. Who's on? Who's on? Okay, let's talk to uh, Sarah from Huntington Beach. She'll uh, take the airways right now. Good evening, Sarah. You're live with Vinny Politan. Well, hi, Jordan, and hi, Vinny. My first time calling you, Vinny. I'm so excited. I hope All you're right. On the show. I hope you're on the show a lot. Um, I just wanted to tell you that I'm looking forward to your new show, and I'll be able to watch it online since I live in California, I think. And um, wanted to know if you ever, ever hear or talk to Stephen Brill, the brain behind Court TV, um, and do you think that he would ever do it again? Aha. All right. Number one, Stephen Brill, I've never met the man. I got oh, okay. to Court TV after he had already – now, this is the story. He had already sold his share for, like, $25 million, 
And, and, and the man who ended up running Court TV uh, after that point was Henry Schleif. And Henry's an incredible guy, super smart. Uh, he's also a lawyer uh, and, and really uh, treated all of us so, so well at, at Court TV. But Henry Schleif now runs uh, uh, ID, which is the, the Discovery ID, oh. that channel. Yeah, okay. so the, the man who ran Court TV, the big cheese from Court TV when I was there, is now uh, Discovery ID. Now, will Stephen Brill ever do it again? Um, I don't know. I, 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 the, the world ha- has changed a little bit when it comes to the world of, of cable news channels and, 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 and cable television generally. I, I think at some point you will see a trial network now. Whether it's called Court TV or called something else, um, I don't know. Because there's a huge, we all know there's a huge void in the marketplace right now. There's people streaming trials online, but it's different. It's different it than having a network of of correspondents, people like Beth Karras, Gene Casares, the best of the best, who are out there um, taking these stories and 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 bringing you the information, making it all make sense. Um, I think it's going to happen at some point. Uh, so we just have to be a little more patient. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm, first, I'm first in line uh, cheering and, and wanting that for everybody because I think it's a shame that we don't get to see um, the third branch of government in, in, uh, in action like we used to. Absolutely. And you, you and all of the, the people that you mentioned and Ryan Smith and um, Mike, everybody that were regulars, at, you guys were the best. Just I, you know, Mike Brooks and I uh, uh, both live down here in the Atlanta area, and uh, I text him all the time and talk to him all the time. He's doing he's doing radio down here. He's doing some talk radio down here, and uh, he's also on one of the, uh, the TV stations down here as well. So well, Mike's doing him. well. Mike's doing well, uh, and uh, I still keep in contact with Mike Brooks and, and I. Uh, I didn't meet him until I moved to Atlanta, but I'd watched him on TV, you know, filling in for Nancy Grace and, and being on the shows. And I'm telling you, from the first two minutes we were together, we were like, we were like best friends. So um, Mike's wonderful. an incredible guy, incredible guy. Okay, I won't keep you too long, but, um, oh, I think the governor that you guys are trying to think of was Governor Spitzer. Spitzer. Yes. Spitzer, yes. There it is. Right. number okay. nine. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. <laughs> um, okay, so... Uh, okay, Vinny, give me one word to yes. describe your years at Court TV and in session. Wow, that's a tough Fulfilling. one. Fulfilling. Fulfilling, and I, and I say that because sometimes you work a job and you're like, yeah, I'm working the job because I have to work the job. I mean, Court TV was the job I, n- I never, ever would have left. They had to take me out the way they took me out by getting rid of Court TV. That was the only way. I was never going to leave that job. You know, other people, you know, when their contracts are getting ready to end, they're like, you know, sending feelers out. Do I want to go to ABC or CBS or NBC? Yeah. Do I want to do X, Y, and Z. I never wanted another job. I just, I just mm. wanted to be there. I wanted to be, um, I wanted to be Fred Graham and just, mm. you know, run the table and, and finish it out. Um, but unfortunately, the network went away. So, and and I've got a great job now, and I'm working with great people. Um, but it, it was absolutely fulfilling because it was I, when I was a lawyer. The part of being a lawyer that I loved was being in a courtroom, pleading my case to a jury, 
when I was on court TV as a correspondent and then as an anchor, I felt like that's what I was doing. But I was doing it all the time, every day, with the, the most fascinating uh, cases in, in the country. And, and the other thing that I loved about it was being able to take my passion for the law and, and bring it to people who otherwise might not be interested. Because we, we know the cases people were interested in, you know, Casey Anthony mm-hmm. and, and um, uh, Anna Nicole Smith and, and cases like that that, that brought Peterson. people to our, to our network that wouldn't ordinarily pay attention to the legal system. You know, we have our hardcore viewers and listeners, and, and we know who they are. But there was, right. you know, reaching those other folks and, and letting them understand how the system works or doesn't work um, to me was the other fulfilling part of it. So for me, it was fulfilling uh, for myself satisfaction, but it was also fulfilling knowing um, that people were, were, were learning a little something uh, along the way and being exposed to something that otherwise, uh, you know, people don't pay a lot of attention to until they get that notice in the mail that they have jury duty and then they do everything in their power not to go. Thanks so much, Sarah, for the call. Let's go out Great to, to Virginia to and say hello to Mary. Good evening, Mary. You're live with Vinny. How are you? Hi, Jordan, and oh, what a treat to talk to you, Vinny. Hey, Mary. I'm calling from Hawaii, but I used to live in Virginia and wow. followed you all the way <laughs> what back time is from it there? Court, court TV. It's um, 4.30 p.m. Very nice. Which island are you on? Uh, Hawaii, the big island. The big one, okay, gotcha. The big one, yeah. And um, anyway, I'm so excited to talk <laughs> with you. It's like home week when you bring up all the different people that we knew uh, that are now all dispersed but doing well. Yeah. And um, interesting, a couple of years ago, I ran into Ryan Smith in an elevator at the courthouse for the um, Stiletto murder trial. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was there. I was happened to be there for a week as my husband was training, and I decided, why not? I'm going to the trial. That's how much I love trial. <laughs> yeah. And I ran into him, and we talked and, you know, had a good time. So, Ryan, um, uh, yeah, I haven't spoken to Ryan in a while, but, uh, you know, he's doing well. He's, he's got the whole ABC, well. yeah, ESPN yeah. thing going on. He's doing some real high-profile stuff, and he's got those twins at home. So yes, he all does. cool with Ryan. Yes, yep. I guess now. Yeah. So, Vinny, you start. You have always been a prosecutor. Were you ever a defense attorney? Well, I'll tell you a deep, dark secret. Uh oh. <laughs> when I left, the, when I left the prosecutor's office, uh, I went to a, a great firm in New Jersey, Corella Burn Bank, Checky Stewart and Olstein, and um, they we we did. I did labor law. I did. Um, Intellectual uh, property litigation oh. and regular commercial litigation. <laughs> however, yeah. however, when um, any sort of little criminal case filtered into the into the um, firm, they would give it to me. And right. for the most part, they weren't criminal criminal cases. They were like, you know, the, the the president of this company, his son got pulled over for doing X, Y, and Z, and I'd go to municipal court. Right. So I did a little bit of that, and then I also did some federal defense work. Now, when there's, um, say there's three defendants in a federal case and none of them can afford their own attorneys, one will get the, uh-huh. the federal public defender. The other two um, have to go to private attorneys who then get paid um, by, the, by the federal government. 
So I took a few of oh, those cases to keep my yeah. to keep my litigation chops going, and uh, right. I took interesting cases. Um, I had three three big clients. Um, one was a, um, a, a war vet who was um, indicted for some sort of a, a tax fraud thing, right? But he was indicted like six years before I got the case when they finally arrested him. And I brought up a, a speedy trial motion saying, listen, and, and, the, and the, um, the, the government, the prosecution, the government said, well, we were looking for him. We couldn't find him. And then I said, Your Honor, he's in a wheelchair. He's a veteran. He's been in the VA hospital for six years. How could they not find him? And, and the case was ultimately dismissed, believe it or not, uh, because Probably of the lack of a speedy trial. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, they claimed they couldn't find him. I think it was just because a lazy prosecutor who didn't want to do the case. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to say that um, I'm one of the few that are that actually one of the few, and I can't believe why, but I totally didn't think Amanda Knox was guilty from the when all the evidence was presented because there was nothing connecting her uh, to the crime, and except I mean she lived there. She and lived, yeah, was, and part of the evidence they, yeah, they, they, they tried to bring us is that her DNA was in the bathroom. Yeah. Hello? Exactly. Well, she lives she there. Lives there. Yeah. Right. It, and, it, um, it, it was and an insane case. It was, absolutely. And Ann Bremner did a great job. She always brings her up when she's on the uh, King Jordan show and, and mentions, you know, she had such a raw deal and her whole family went through so much. She had to mortgage her home. Oh, they yeah. Split up. I mean, gone through so much oh it, 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 it was it was complete insanity and bremner um she's a stanford grad just like me and uh, i spent a lot oh. of time with her um in california during the scott peterson case because she came oh. she rolled into town yeah. um and and she was floating around and she was making the rounds the scott peterson case was really interesting the way it was set up um because people don't realize there weren't cameras in the courtroom for that trial Everyone okay. assumes that there were, but there weren't. There were no cameras in the courtroom. So it was really up to the reporters to go in and then come out and try to explain everything that right. was happening. And this was before right. um, people were tweeting and all the, all the other ways we get the information now. It was like the old-fashioned right. way. So um, right. outside that courthouse, like, everybody had their setup. Like, Dan Abrams and MSNBC had their setup. Fox and Greta Van Susteren had their setup. Larry King and CNN had his setup. Then uh, Court TV with me and Nancy, we had our setup. And you'd watch the guests would just bounce from tent to tent to tent. And at Court TV, we were off the air at 5, so um, Henry Schleif, the, our, our, our boss, always wanted uh-huh. us to appear on other networks. So I was doing uh-huh. the same thing. So you know, Court would end at 5, and then I'd sit in one tent, and I'd talk with Dan Abrams, and then me and Gloria Allred and whoever else was around, maybe Ann Bremner, we'd go over to the next tent, and then we'd talk with Greta Van Susteren. And then when Greta was done, then we'd go to the next tent, and, and we'd talk with uh, uh, Larry King. It was, it was uh, oh, really the, 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 the glory days of courtroom coverage when the other right. cable networks were doing it, too. It wasn't just court TV. If you, if you remember, like, Greta used to actually do law before she did all politics. Yeah, Dan Abrams, um, and, and before... Before MSNBC became, you know, the 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 um, the liberal network, 
Dan Abrams and other shows on the network were covering this stuff. And, and CNN was covering stuff because Larry King would be in the middle of all these cases. And um, wow. those, that was really the heyday because you had, you not only had Gore yeah. TV, but you had everybody else was covering it too. So, Right. Well, I want to really thank you for being on the show. And, uh, you know, uh, you're uh, such a lively and, and honest person, and I really enjoy listening to you. And thank you, Jordan, again, for having such awesome guests. And you all have a good Thank evening. you. Aloha. Thank you. Appreciate it, Mary. Aloha. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So, Vinny, you have a show coming up debuting this Sunday. I guess it'll be on the Internet for those not in the Atlanta area. Yeah, for those uh, not in, you... in Atlanta, you go to 11alive.com. 11alive.com. It's going to be um, until football season's over. It's going to be Sunday through Thursday night at 11 o'clock or after the Sunday night football game. So those nights will be a little bit later. And it's going to be it's going to be a real mix. It's going to be um, we're going to cover news of the day, but we're going to do it in a much different way. So people who remember my old show Prime News on HLN, oh, people yeah. who remember my show After was that Dark. Like four in the afternoon. You had yeah, that was a six o'clock. That was a six o'clock show. Um, okay. And then After Dark, which used to be on at ten o'clock on HLN. Yes. So it's got a little Eastern bit time, of, right. of the flavor of those two shows mixed in with some new ways that we're doing it. And uh, I think I think people will enjoy it. You don't have to be from Atlanta to watch it, so you can go right on elevenalive.com. Right. But uh, how you guys? Uh, how do you think you're going to handle uh, in about in a couple of weeks when OJ, like the day before he's scheduled to be released, is there going to be a little clock on the bottom of the screens? I mean, yeah, what, what uh, do you yeah, uh, so. envision in terms of OJ? That, you know, the real question is, are they going to tell us when he's going to be released? We know when he's eligible to be released. But will it be made public when he actually goes out, or will they try to just you know sneak him under the, the the cover of night? That'll be interesting to see how that goes, and it'll be also interesting to see you know what his what his life is like, um, because getting back to the law, um, any dollar that he earns um, goes to the Goldmans. The Goldmans are going to are going to go after him, and 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 rightfully so. I mean, I think he owes him now. He owes them more than seventy million dollars. Everyone talks about the judgment being thirty-three million, um, but interest gets attached to that under California law. So I, I think the number is actually closer to seventy million that he owes. Now he'll go back and live in Florida because if you live in Florida, they, they can't get your house and uh, they can't attack his pension, whatever uh, amount of pension that he's yeah, getting. So he'll live in right. he'll live in Florida. Um, but he'll probably end up doing what he was doing before, which is always seeking opportunities to make money under the table so the Goldmans uh, don't know about it. And, and I'm sure that will continue. But it'll be interesting to see how public he makes himself or if he does what he should do, which is spend time with his with his kids and grandkids and just go away. Go away is the best thing. And uh, did you think the uh, parole hearing was a little shady? Uh, the uh, people involved, like, you know, they were laughing. Uh, he said some things that made people annoyed. Did you think the process of that uh, was a little uh, shady? Well, the, the bottom line, the, the case that he was convicted of, you know, you, you right. look at, you know, prior record and everything else, you know, legally everything was probably done appropriately in terms of, being eligible and and being released, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
But I, 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 I agree with you on, on the tone of things that um, – Lady laughing He was found liable for those for those two killings. I mean, he was found liable for it. He wasn't found guilty of murder, but he's found liable in the wrongful death case. Uh, which counts? Which, which, you know. which to me absolutely counts. You know, there's a and big picture now. There's a difference between not guilty and innocent. Okay, and right. a, a defendant never has to prove their innocence. And in a criminal trial, a jury is never asked. If someone is innocent, the only question they're asked, has the prosecution proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the only question that they have to answer. So they're not saying guilty or innocent. They're either saying proven guilty or not proven guilty. And those are the the only questions that are answered uh, by a jury. So, you know, a lot of times as a journalist now, when I interview criminal defense attorneys in a case, and I ask them, and I ask them this question, and they can never really answer it, right? But I ask it anyway, just to make a point. You know, is your client not guilty, or is your client innocent? Yeah, and so you interview with Joe They Amendola. don't like to answer it that one. And I, say, and, I, and I say the difference is not guilty is there, you know there's there's not enough evidence to prove that your guy did it, right? But is he actually factually innocent, meaning? Either the crime didn't happen, or if the crime did happen, somebody else did it. And right. they don't like that question. <laughs> no, they don't like it at all. I remember when you interviewed Tadowski's attorney, and, uh, whoa, would that, uh, I mean, you basically make him look like an idiot. But uh, <laughs> that wasn't too hard, <laughs> I guess. Uh, no, I want to thank you so much for joining us and staying uh, into overtime here. Really appreciate it. You're a uh, wonderful commentator. I wish you the best of luck on your new uh, show coming up on 11alive.com. Uh, and I hope you'll uh, come back on the show. Well, I, I certainly will, and uh, I appreciate uh, you giving me all this time. And uh, what I really appreciated was the Toto at the top of the show. Oh, Love really? You like Toto? Love really? that song. Yes. That's a great song. <laughs> 80s person. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much, Vin. We'll have a great night, soon. King. Okay, have a good one. That was the uh, legendary Vinnie Politan. Uh, he was uh, on Court TV, HLN. He covered uh, all the big cases. Uh, just great to have uh, Joey Jackson and then back-to-back uh, with Vinnie Politan. So uh, shout out to him. Shout out to uh, Madeline, who is listening right now. Uh, shout out to Pager, who is listening right now. Uh, Phyllis, uh, Vicky, Sarah, Kardashian. Uh, let's see who else we have. Mary. Um, everybody else uh, who I can't think of right now off the top of my head. Uh, yes, so we did cover uh, Anthony Weider. Benny gave us a great explanation in terms of the law. Uh, that was a great uh, topic. I think uh, out of all our guests, he did the best job with uh, covering Kaepernick got in the uh, legal aspect. Uh, that was an awesome job by him, um, as well as uh, the uh, realtor in Houston, which we were talking about last week with Joey. So, uh 
Uh, just a uh, wonderful job, uh, as you people know, uh, trying to get ready for the last couple of years. We succeeded this season, and uh, thanks to you guys, uh, appreciate it so much. So let's leave you with uh, let's uh, leave you with uh, something that we could all use right now is to heal the world with uh, all these uh, hurricanes, whether they're in Florida, whether they're in um, Houston. Let's see you with some uh, Michael Jackson's Heal the World, and uh, we'll wish you good night, and we'll speak to you next time. Thanks to Vinny for coming on the show. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks, everybody. about um, the generations and to say we want to make it a better place for our children and our children's children so that they, 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 they know it's a better world for them and think they can make it a better place. There's a place in your heart and I know that it is love brighter than tomorrow and if you really try you'll find there's no need to cry in this place you feel there's no hurt or sorrow there are ways to get there if you care enough for the living make a little Love that 